Dear Father, thank you that you are with us now. Thank you that you are always working so hard to lead us closer to you. And in these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, that contain so many historical facts, please help us to pull out the spiritual understanding in these books that brings us closer to you. Amen. Again, just to go back here, we're discussing things that have happened after the fall of Jerusalem. And last time we talked about Haggai, Zechariah, and Zerubbabel and Joshua trying to rebuild the temple in about 520 BC. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, who are also coming back to try to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, uh, notice that it's, it is about 60 years plus after Haggai and Zechariah. Okay? But it's still, they're trying to accomplish the same thing. There's some interesting details in here. And in two weeks, then, our last two books that we'll cover together in the Old Testament chronologically are Esther and then uh, Malachi. Right now, this is kind of interesting here. The first six chapters of Ezra are a historical description of what happened after the 70 years of captivity and the people coming out of, Jeru uh, coming out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. And uh, notice the description here. The enemies of the people of Judah and Benjamin, remember those are the two tribes that are, that are left, heard that those who had returned from exile were rebuilding the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the people who had been living in the land tried to discourage and frighten the Jews and keep them from building. And this description goes all the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. There was great opposition to the rebuilding of the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. They also bribed Persian government officials to work against them. And they kept on doing this throughout the reign of Emperor Cyrus and into the reign of Emperor Darius. And I think this is very interesting here. Ezra is writing back about the original conflict that happened as they were trying to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls. And now we have to come back to Daniel. Remember, Daniel had such a long life, lived through so many kings, including Cyrus. And uh, listen to this description here in Daniel. This is the angel comes to Daniel in the third year that Cyrus was emperor of Persia. And the angel comes, and I just had to include this here. The angel said to me, Daniel, God loves you. And what would it be like to have an angel come to you with a message? God loves you. And you know, Daniel's on the floor. And then uh, the encouraging message comes, don't worry, Daniel, God loves you. Now stand up and listen. And this is the description here. This is the angel talking now. The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. It was the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. And the description goes on. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. Who's that? And after that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. There is no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. And we never get a description of angels fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat or um, you know, lightning bolts being sent back and forth through the sky. Um, but what in the world is, is uh, why does the angel come and describe this angelic conflict going on here? So our questions are, who's the prince of the kingdom of Persia? He's opposing this angel. And this angel even needs the help of Michael in this fight. And so I think it's interesting here, who is the prince of this world? 
Well, now the prince of this world will be driven out. That's referring to Satan. The prince of this world is coming. Again, referring to Satan. And the prince of this world now stands condemned. All of these here in uh, John described by Jesus. So wouldn't it make sense that the prince of this world, who an angel even needs the assistance of Michael to combat, that this um, could likely refer to Satan that's involved in this conflict. Okay, so who is fighting against Satan in this? It's Michael. And uh, the name Michael is very interesting because the name actually is a question. And the name Michael uh, is a question which is, who is God? Or what is God like? And so it's interesting as we go through it here, every reference to Michael in the Bible, it is always in conflict with Satan. Okay, so our description here in Daniel, we just read Michael, one of the archangels. Okay, in Daniel 12, um, the end of Daniel chapter 11 describes the king of the north or the king of Syria. And we, never, we didn't go through this. It's fascinating. And I think it's contemporary for our, for our time. But I personally believe that that is Satan. But anyway, we get down here through Daniel 11. Daniel 12 opens up. The great angel Michael who guards your people will appear or he will stand up to protect his people. Again, it's in this conflict. And in Jude 9, the dispute over the resurrection of Moses, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Again, in conflict with Satan. And the most famous one here in Revelation 12, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought back with his angels. But the dragon was defeated and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. And Revelation doesn't leave much doubt. The great serpent of old called the devil or Satan, um, that this is who Michael is um, competing with. Right? So who is Michael? Well, it's interesting here in 1 Thessalonians, we read about the resurrection. There will be a shout of command, the archangel's voice the sound of God's trumpet and the Lord himself will come down from heaven and those who died believing in Christ will rise to life first. Okay, they rise at the voice of the archangel. And uh, again, coming back here to Daniel 12 where the great angel Michael who guards your people will appear, then we go on with the description. Many of those who have already died will live again. So we associate Michael here with this resurrection. But then of course in, in other places here in John, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear it will come to life. The time is coming when all the dead will hear his voice and come out of their graves. And so um, this is why I think it's um, very reasonable to come to the conclusion that Michael is referring to Jesus, the archangel who resurrects the wicked, or, I'm sorry, the, the, the righteous, and who is in conflict here with uh, Satan. Well, the, the wicked are resurrected as well, all right? And that is a, a huge subject. Why would God bother to resurrect the wicked. Um, but anyway, that's for, for another day. Sorry, so we get this description here. And uh, some might say, well, Michael is an angel. Jesus is not an angel. But that shouldn't bother us because all the way through the Bible, um, who is it that comes to Moses at the burning bush? It's the angel of the Lord. But then you read on the description and it is God Moses is talking to. The I am. The angel of the Lord was with Hagar in the desert. But then she says, I've seen God and have lived to see it. And it was the angel of the Lord that led Israel through the desert. But then Paul says it was Jesus who led uh, the children of Israel through the desert. So 
um, that God's condescension, you know, and be willing to refer here to as an angel, but of course, you know, he lived in a womb for nine months. So God's condescension is quite amazing here. So anyway, this Michael and Satan in this conflict. And so I want to kind of think about what is going on in this battle. Let's go back to Cyrus. We talked about this earlier in Isaiah, how incredible this is, that hundreds of years before Cyrus was born, and in this chapter here in Isaiah, God is saying, look, all these other messages about me are false. I'm going to prove that, that I am the true God, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to predict the future. And he goes on and says, I have chosen a man who lives in the east. I will bring him to attack from the north. And the description is, I say to you, Cyrus, you are the one who will rule for me. You will do what I want you to do. You will order that Jerusalem be rebuilt and that the foundations of the temple be laid. The Lord has chosen Cyrus to be king. He's appointed him to conquer nations. He sends him to strip kings of their power. The Lord will open the gates of cities for him. Here's some evidence. I'm going to name this person hundreds of years before he's born and um, as a sign that I am the true God. And now, do you think that um, Satan reads the Bible or has any... Uh, interested in what is said to someone like Isaiah. Yes, wouldn't he be uh, in tune to the prophecy of Jeremiah that in 70 years they're going to come out of Babylon to Jerusalem? I think he would be quite interested in all of that. All right, so is it any coincidence then that here is a Cyrus who becomes king, that Satan would be very active and involved and in trying to stop uh, God's plan and the prophecy here that all this would happen. So I think it's not surprising that we see this big conflict as Satan tries to prevent what God has, has said would happen. And we could go through so many examples of this when I think it is so helpful as we read the Bible to imagine uh, behind the scenes the conflict that is going on. For example, in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, the Lord said to him, your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. They'll be slaves there and will be treated cruelly for 400 years. But after that, they will come out of uh, their bondage. Okay, so 400 years goes by. And Satan remembers what was told to Adam and Eve, that someone would come that would crush his head. And so the 400 years are up. Okay, who's going to come? And I think it's no coincidence that after this time that the Pharaoh said, told the, uh, the women to kill all the baby boys. Was that a coincidence? that right on time we get this decree to kill all the baby boys. Don't you think Satan is aware this is the time and I'm going to try to intervene to stop God's plans? Well, what about, we never had a chance to go through this, but the 70-year prophecy in Daniel, which is, I think, quite incredible, the 70-week prophecy where you know, it predicted the coming of the Messiah right on time. Okay, is it any coincidence then that... Um, we have another order here through Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its neighborhood who were two years old and younger. And of course, Satan must have been aware here. These three wise men come out. And again, he works with Herod, who certainly was not on God's side. And again, behind the scenes, we see this conflict between God and Satan being played out. And there's just so many examples. I mean, just the sacrificial system which we haven't talked about in a while, but God gave that in Hebrews 10, it says, to remind them of the serious consequences of sin. And if you're Adam and you have to 
uh, kill an animal, that would leave an incredible impression, I think. Boy, this is serious, this rebellion. Of course, what's the counterfeit all the way through the Old Testament? Counterfeit is appeasement, idolatry. That is the one common thread is we kill even our firstborn to appease the wrath of God. That is the false uh, sacrificial system through the Old Testament. And what's even really incredible is around the time of Jesus and 200 years before, the big movement around this time was mystery religions. Mystery religions. And what is incredible about these is they involved a dying, rising savior. They involved a virgin birth. So many things that we see in, uh, in Jesus, superficially. And so for many, uh, it is said that Christianity is just a mystery religion that has survived. And this can be very troubling, I think, to us unless we recognize that there is a great controversy going on. There is an opponent who is always trying to counterfeit, always trying to get in the way of God's plan. And I think that's what's being described here with uh, Cyrus. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you, to separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. Of course, he knew that it would. So we went on to say, and when you turn back to me, you must strengthen your brothers. But again, what, where is the war going on here? This is not just a big conflict where God and Satan are only concerned about world leaders and so on, but it is a conflict that goes on within the mind of each one of us. And here, uh, this is what Jesus is describing um, to Peter. And so Paul's words here, put on all the armor that God gives you. Okay, who are we fighting? So that you will be able to stand up against the devil's evil tricks, for we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. Okay, that is the enemy. Uh, that's who we're, we're ultimately involved with in this. So I think you, if you look for this, we see it all the way through the Bible. And I think this great controversy perspective is very important. And of course, what we need to add to that is what the ultimate issue is in the great controversy. And it does really come down to the character of God. That's what Satan is trying to deceive us about. All right, so coming back here to Ezra, Ezra opens up with the famous decree of Cyrus. In the first year that Cyrus of Persia was emperor, the Lord made what he had said through the prophet Jeremiah come true. He prompted Cyrus to issue the following command and send it out in writing to be read aloud everywhere in his empire. This is the command of Cyrus, emperor of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has made me ruler over the whole world. Now, isn't that incredible? king of Persia, most powerful person in the world is here acknowledging God, just like Nebuchadnezzar, right, who, uh, who acknowledged God. He's made me ruler over the whole world and has given me the responsibility of building a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judah. May God be with all of you who are his people. You are to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is worshipped in Jerusalem. If any of his people in exile need help to return, their neighbors are to give them this help. They are to provide them with silver and gold, supplies and pack animals, as well as offerings to present in the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the clans of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, and everyone else whose heart God had moved got ready to go and rebuild the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. Okay, and so we read on that the number who came back was 42,360. 
And then we come to Ezra 7, which is where now the historical account, uh, Ezra now is writing about what is happening in his time. So many years later, remember it's about 60 years later or so, when Artaxerxes was emperor of Persia, there was a man named Ezra. Ezra writes about himself. Ezra was a scholar with a thorough knowledge of the law, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to Moses. Because Ezra had the blessing of the Lord his God, the emperor gave him everything he asked for. In the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which is about 457 BC, Ezra set out from Babylon for Jerusalem with a group of Israelites, which included priests, Levites, temple musicians, temple guards, and workers. And it's very interesting here. We'll go through Ezra and Nehemiah together because they're describing the same time. But how vigilant these people had to be as they came back to rebuild the wall, holding a sword in their hand because of the enemies who were trying to defeat them. But uh, this description here, and now we're going into Nehemiah, but still talking about Ezra. Look what Ezra tried to do. He tried to give the people a knowledge of God. On the first day of that month, all the people assembled in Jerusalem, in the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the priest and scholar of the law, which the Lord had given Israel through Moses, to get the book of the law. So Ezra brought it to the place where the people had gathered, men, women, and the children who were old enough to understand. There in the square by the gate, he read the law to them from dawn until noon, and they all listened attentively. It'd be interesting to know exactly um, what he read. But Ezra was standing on a wooden platform that had been built for the occasion. As Ezra stood there on the platform, high above the people, they all kept their eyes fixed on him. As soon as he opened the book, they all stood up. Ezra said, Praise the Lord, the great God. All the people raised their arms in the air and answered, Amen, Amen. They knelt in worship with their faces to the ground. Then they rose and stood in their places. And the following Levites explained the law to them. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, why couldn't Ezra just read and they would understand as he was reading it to them. And the reason is, remember this is 457, it's on the last side, but this is over 100 years after the last Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem. So the people all spoke Aramaic for the most part. They'd gone off to Babylon and they were speaking Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Okay, so the Bible is written in Hebrew and so now Ezra stands up and reads this in Hebrew and most of the people didn't understand what was being read. They needed to have it translated to them. Okay, so these Levites, and I left out the long list of Levites who translated, but they gave an oral translation of God's law and explained it so that the people could understand it. And when the people heard what the law required, they were so moved that they began to cry. So Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scholar of the law, and the Levites who were explaining the law told all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, so you are not to mourn or cry. Now go home and have a feast. Share your food and wine with those who don't have enough. Today is holy to our Lord, so don't be sad. The joy that the Lord gives you will make you strong. The Levites went around calming the people and telling them not to be sad on such a holy day. So all the people went home and ate and drank joyfully and shared what they had with others because they understood what had been read to them. And I think that's the, the key thing here. We talk about inspiration. You know, if a book like the Bible is just on a table, yes, it's an inspired book, but it really becomes inspired when the meaning, when we understand what those words really mean. This is what happened. This is what was so emotional for the people as they not only heard the words, 
but they internalized the meaning of the words. That's what brought about such emotion. And uh, I think this is just very, very appealing. What God wants is for us to understand. It is all about the meaning. And even about something like uh, the death of Jesus, which we'll talk about in a couple days. Uh, Paul's words, this means that every time you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For if you do not recognize the meaning of the Lord's body, when you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you bring judgment on yourself as you eat and drink. These things, everything that is in the Bible, everything that God has done is for meaning, understanding for us. It is not something where it's not important if we know how it works. Because as we know how it works, that is what actually brings us to God. And I think one of my favorite stories here, and now we have to go into to Luke, but is the story of the Emmaus Road. And I want to just read through this because I think it makes the point so well. Okay, so Jesus has been resurrected, but no, hardly anyone knows about it. And so these two men are walking along. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. As they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. They saw him, but somehow did not recognize him. And what I want you to just think about is why? Why wouldn't Jesus just say, look, it's me? And they would have fallen down. They would have worshipped him. Why would he choose to disguise himself? And Jesus said to them, what are you talking about to each other as you walk along? And they stood still with sad faces. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening there these last few days? What things? He asked. The things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. This man was a prophet and was considered by God and by all the people to be powerful in everything he said and did. Our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and he was crucified. And we had hoped that he would be the one who would set Israel free. Besides all that, this is now the third day since it happened. Some of the women of our group surprised us. They went at dawn to the tomb, but could not find his body. They came back, saying they had seen a vision of angels who told them that he is alive. Some of our group went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, how slow you are to believe everything the prophets said. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And Jesus explained to them what was said about himself in all the scriptures, beginning with the books of Moses and the writings of all the prophets, and don't you just wish here we had the whole list of Jesus' use of the Old Testament to explain all of these things to them? Well, unfortunately, we don't get the description. But anyway, went through the Bible, basically explained it all to them. And as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they held him back, saying, Stay with us. The day is almost over, and it is getting dark. So he went in to stay with them. He sat down to eat with them, took the bread, and said the blessing. Then he broke the bread and gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, Wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And then, of course, they ran back to talk with the other disciples. So why did Jesus come in disguise? Notice, when did he reveal himself physically to them? It was when they understood and they understood not because of an intimidating presence standing before them. I mean, had he just come, I'm Jesus, uh, yes, they would have rejoiced, they would have run back to the disciples, but 
Much more important here is the understanding. We get it. And once they got it, why stay in disguise anymore? Now he revealed himself to them. So everything is about the meaning and the understanding. And um, I like very much that God appeals to us on an evidence uh, kind of a level, not just based on intimidation or power or something like that. So I think that's... Uh, that's the meaning there of uh, the significance of Ezra and the, the understanding what was said. All right, so now we come back and we get to some very, very difficult things in these two books, which I think are very helpful for us in understanding why the people were the way they were when Jesus came. So some of the leaders of the people of Israel came and told me that the people, the priests and the Levites had not kept themselves separate from the people in the neighboring countries of Ammon, Moab, and Egypt, or from the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Amorites. They were doing the same disgusting things which these people did. Jewish men were marrying foreign women, and so God's holy people had become contaminated. The leaders and officials were the chief offenders. When I heard this, I tore my clothes, this is Ezra, in despair, tore my hair and my beard, and sat down crushed with grief. I sat there grieving until the time for the evening sacrifice to be offered and people began to gather around me. All those who were frightened because of what God of Israel had said about the sins of those who had returned from exile. When the time came for the evening sacrifice, I got up from where I had been grieving and still wearing my torn clothes. I knelt in prayer and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. I said, O oh God, I am too ashamed to raise my head in your presence. Our sins pile up higher than our heads they reach as high as the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we, your people, have sinned greatly. Because of our sins, we, our kings and our priests, have fallen into the hands of foreign kings, and we have been slaughtered, robbed, and carried away as prisoners. We have been totally disgraced, as we still are today. Now for a short time, our Lord our God, you have been gracious to us and have let some of us escape from slavery and live in safety in this holy place. You have let us escape from slavery and have given us new life. We were slaves, but you did not leave us in slavery. You made the emperors of Persia favor us and permit us to go on living and to rebuild your temple, which was in ruins, and to find safety here in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O oh God, what can we say after all that has happened? We have again disobeyed the commands that you gave us through your servants, the prophets. They told us that the land we were going to occupy was an impure land because the people who lived in it filled it from one end to the other with disgusting, filth, filthy actions. They told us that we were never to intermarry with those people and never to help them prosper or succeed. If we wanted to enjoy the land and pass it on to your descendants forever, then how can we ignore your commands again and intermarry with these wicked people? Okay, so it's a real crisis here. The people are again uh, becoming assimilated, basically, into the neighboring nations which were involved in idolatry Right back to the same problem. So what's the solution? Well, while Ezra was bowing in prayer in front of the temple, weeping and confessing these sins, a large group of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, weeping bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of, and it goes on here, says, we have broken faith with God by marrying foreign women, but even so, there is still hope for Israel. Now we must make a solemn promise to our God that we will send these women and their children away. We will do what you and the others who honor God's commands advise us to do. We will do what God's law demands. And then as you read on here, the last chapter of Ezra, it says a message was sent 
throughout Jerusalem and Judah that all those who had returned from exile were to meet in Jerusalem by order of the leaders of the people. If any failed to come within three days, all their property would be confiscated. This is pretty serious. Everyone has to come together. And um, it goes on to describe, basically, you must all divorce your foreign wives and the children of those foreign wives. And the people all shouted in answer, we will do whatever you say. And so we get the list here. This is the list of the men who had foreign wives. And between Ezra 10.18 and 10.44, you can see a long list of men who had foreign wives. And all these men had foreign wives. They divorced them and sent their children away. I mean, isn't this horrible? You've got a family and they sent all these women and their children away. Now, this is interesting because when Jesus came, was this an issue? I mean, the Jews in his day were so separated from the heathens that, remember, they even washed their hands in a peculiar way so as not to contaminate themselves. Okay, so they really had, 400 years later, there was no intermarrying. They were separated from the heathen people. Now, the same issue here in Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah starts out, I won't read through this, but he is basically the cupbearer for the king, Artaxerxes. And he prays. It's interesting here. He says, give me success today and make the emperor merciful to me. And then we read on one day, four months later, his prayer is, is answered. And Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to go back to help Ezra in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so... Uh, the description here is another issue, which is the people are now not keeping the Sabbath. And notice how Nehemiah deals with this issue. Now, these are behavioral problems, and this is how Ezra and Nehemiah chose to deal with those problems. Nehemiah saw in Jerusalem there were people pressing juice from grapes on the Sabbath. Others were loading grain, wine, grapes, figs, and other things on their donkeys and taking them into Jerusalem. I warned them not to sell anything on the Sabbath. And it goes through very, very severe. I warned them it's no use waiting out there for morning to come. If you try this again, I'll use force on you. Okay, to all of the people trading on the Sabbath, I'll use force against you if you do this. And at that time, I also discovered that many of the Jewish men had married women. And again, there's the problem with the intermarrying going on. And he reminds them it was the foreign women that made King Solomon sin. And that's true. But notice his uh, methods here. What did he do? I reprimanded the men. I called down curses on them, beat them, and pulled out their hair. Now, are these good methods to use? Break the Sabbath and I'll pull the hair out of your beard or beat you up. Well, it does seem that the people, again, 400 years later, what do you see? You see obedience right, to all of these things they really did finally obey from an external uh, perspective. But notice, what does Jesus say? Well, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. Now, can you command anyone to love? I command you. You must love each other. Can you command the keeping of the law. Can you demand any of these things? No, it all has to come from uh, internally, right? You cannot uh, will these kinds of things. And that's why I think it's interesting if we go through here the Ten Commandments, 
do not commit murder. And of course, the Jews in Jesus' day felt pretty good. They weren't killing people. And then Jesus told them, don't even hate your brother. It's an internal thing. That is much more important. Do not commit adultery. They felt pretty good. They weren't committing adultery. And then he said, don't even look at a woman in that way. Again, the internal, much more important. And I like that the 10th commandment is do not even desire. Yeah, that's the hardest one to keep. Don't even want to do something wrong. And this is the, the whole importance here of the law being written on the heart because you just can't will these kinds of things. And uh, observe the Sabbath, since this was such a big issue here with Nehemiah and the Sabbath. Um, I think it's interesting here the description later in Isaiah, keep the Sabbath day holy, don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. And in some versions, it, the Sabbath must be a delight. So now imagine if uh, maybe you have kept the Sabbath from an external perspective and you haven't done this and that and the other thing, but if at the end of the day you didn't enjoy it, then you didn't keep the Sabbath. So would you be worrying, uh, boy, you know, I really did a good job today and then... If you didn't enjoy it, then it, it really wasn't worth anything. So um, I think on this note here, just, just in conclusion here, um, this forced Sabbath observance by Nehemiah pulling out beards for, um, for not keeping the Sabbath, it is interesting. What is the meaning of the Sabbath? We talked about here the meaning all the way through. It is the meaning that is so important. And... Uh, I think it is interesting here. We associate the Sabbath with several things in the Bible. The first is creation. And of course, remember what happened in creation. God said, and now we will make human beings. They will be like us and resemble us. So God created human beings, making them to be like himself. How are we like God? And I like the Message Bible. It says he created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. And later in the Psalms, uh, what is it about humans, yet you make them inferior only to yourself, to God? Okay, what is significant in all of this? And then, of course, uh, we read here that after this creation, so the heavens and earth and everything else were created, and by the seventh day God had finished his work, and so he rested. Okay, was he tired? Uh, and God blessed the seventh day and made it special because on that day he rested from his work. Now, were Adam and Eve tired every seventh day? all that work in the garden and uh, they were exhausted and they needed a day to sleep in and to take an afternoon nap. So God gave them a day to rest. Um, is there a meaning that is involved here? And of course, we've spent so much time talking about that our earth and the human race was created in the context of a great controversy, a war, a conflict that was going on. And we've talked about what some of those issues are and we see how Satan was so able to deceive Eve. And how did he deceive Eve? He caused her to believe that God was an untrustworthy liar. He was restrictive. You can't eat fruit in this garden. Um, he was selfish. There is something that would make you more elevated, God or Eve, but God has prevented you from having what would be for your own good. God's an untrustworthy liar, restrictive, selfish, and so on. Wouldn't this be some of the lies that were perpetuated in heaven? So what does God do in the, con in the context of a great controversy? Okay, he doesn't use his power to destroy the opposition. He uses his power to create planet Earth, the human race, making them a people, 
godlike, reflecting God's nature, his character. And so if there were questions at that time, um, how much does God respect freedom? Well, here he creates a free people. It's your planet. And by the way, Satan, here's a tree. You even have the freedom. If they want to talk with you, uh, they can meet you there at that tree. And he creates a people who have the ability to create little people in their own image. I mean, how free, um, how free were Adam and Eve? And so God rested in the sense, I think, that he rested his case. Any questions about my character? Uh, I am now going to unleash this great power not to wipe out Satan and the opposition, but to create love, freedom right here on planet Earth. Okay, so we can associate things like that with the Sabbath. And then it's interesting. We read on, we come to the Ten Commandments, and of course in Exodus 20, the Fourth Commandment is about the Sabbath. But in Deuteronomy, you get the list of the Ten Commandments again, but now we get a different description. Remember, this is the again the Sabbath commandment. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that I, the Lord your God, rescued you by my great power and strength. That is why I command you to observe the Sabbath. All right, so we were created a completely free people. It's our planet. All right, and then of course we became slaves to sin and to selfishness and to all of the things that separate us from God. And so I think the meaning for us here, yes, God brought these people out of Egyptian bondage, out of slavery, but God will bring us out of the slavery to sin that has resulted in this separation from God. We should associate that with the meaning of the Sabbath. And then I think uh, most important of all, um, of course, when did Jesus die? Friday night, when did he rest in the tomb through the Sabbath? Um, again, if the issue, if the importance in everything that has gone on here is God is either like this or he is like this. It is a controversy over the character of God. Is God one to be feared? I mean, what did Jesus reveal about God? And in allowing his creatures to kill him, in washing the feet of Judas, everything that happened leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus died Friday night, rested in the tomb. And again, I think to say, I rest my case. Are there any questions about my character? Where do we see the ultimate answers to the questions about the kind of person God is? It is in his life and especially in his death. And so he rested in the tomb, I think, again, to give added meaning or significance to the Sabbath. Now, unless we who happen to go to church on Sabbath should become smug, though, I think we have to remember that the Jews, since it was the day of Sabbath preparation, and so the bodies wouldn't stay on the crosses over the Sabbath, it was a high holy day that year, petitioned Pilate that their legs be broken to speed death and the body is taken down. So they came by and tried to hurry up the death of Jesus for the purpose of getting home to keep the Sabbath. All right, so the Sabbath cannot be just about the day itself. Sabbath keepers crucified Jesus. All right, so I think as we think about all of these things, I think the Bible gives us a lot to think about on Sabbath. The creation in the context of the great controversy, freedom from sin, um, our God who died, and we ask on the Sabbath, perhaps, why did Jesus have to die? Some of these very important questions. Um, so I think everything... Uh, yeah, I enjoy having a, a day of rest very much. But as a physician, some of your hardest days of work may be on the Sabbath. All right? So I think it is much more than a rest. There is uh, meaning behind that as well. And perhaps 
uh, Nehemiah in pulling beards out and trying to enforce Sabbath observance. I think all of this, if we do not obey because we want to, because it makes sense, because we agree with God that these things make sense, then our obedience, if it is out of fear or trying to keep a list, as we see these people who crucified Jesus, the obedience actually turned them into rebels and even hating God himself so much that they wanted to uh, crucify him. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you do very much appeal to our reason. And I think for us as uh, physicians, we're very much trained to want to understand things and to have it make sense and to appeal to our reason. So uh, we appreciate that these are the methods that you use and that you don't want us to blindly go along, but to to go along with you because it makes the most sense and that everything you ask us to do makes sense. It's reasonable. And so help us to uh, see more clearly and understand more clearly all of these things. Amen.